Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to pick up in verse 26 today. And let me forewarn you as I delve into this text, this is another one of those warning passages. Now, I want to say this before I begin, and this is critical, okay? This is one of those passages I think we have a tendency sometimes to immediately, as soon as we jump off into the text, we hear the first handful of phrases or statements to think, oh, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not included in this one. And so I can mentally check out. And so, you know, I can take my thoughts elsewhere. What are we having for lunch today? Why did they drop all those passes yesterday? Uh, my, my back is sore today, whatever it may be. But listen, I want to tell you the warning passages in Scripture, and there are none more severe. Okay? There are none harsher than the ones you're going to find in Hebrews. These are not meant for us to ignore. Uh, they're not meant for us to just turn into some sort of theory and discuss and debate. They're meant to be heard and heeded. And so as we jump into this text today, here's what I want you to do, which only you can do for your sake. Ask God to speak to you regarding what you need to hear. Because he knows that. You know, he, he knows who's here. He knows who's hearing. He knows who will hear. So I want to pause and pray the shortest prayer this morning. I'll give you an opportunity to pray that. God, help me to hear what I need to hear and see what I need to see. And give me a heart to want what I ought to want. Because you do that for me today. Will you do that? Will you pray that he speaks to you? Let's pray. God, you have heard us, and we thank you for that. We thank you. We've got access to you, to your throne, to speak to you, and you respond, and that's awesome. That's awesome grace. And so, God, now I pray that those things would be true, those things we've asked for, that we hear and we see and we want, and, Father, you move, and that's you. That's not me. That's, that's not human wisdom. That's convincing. That's spirit power that's compelling, and I pray that's what we'd experience today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Now, let me pause there just for a moment. I mean, the writer of Hebrews, with great intensity, fervor, is making it clear that he wants to do more than simply, as we did at the beginning of this chapter, invite you into God's presence. He wants to do more than tell you what God is offering to you. And here's the great salvation that's afforded to you. And here's how you can draw near to him and know his closeness. He wants you to know that the alternative to that, to not go into his presence, to not avail yourself of the offer that God is granting to you, to not receive this incredible mercy and grace, the alternative to that is judgment of the worst sort. And he could not put it in harsher terms. There's no middle ground here. That, that's what he wants us to see. That's what the Holy Spirit is showing to us in this passage. Either we are drawing close to the Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, the God who longs to be our Father and bless us in every good way, 
or we reject him outright, and rejecting him outright is devastating to us. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now here's the bridge to the last passage we were in. If you're new today, this will connect some of the dots to you. So this passage is not just sort of hanging out there because it started with a word that tells you it's connected to something else. Now here's the connection. You remember the, the commands? I almost said challenges as if they're sort of optional to us, but they're actually commands for Christian people. And those commands were phrases like this. Let us draw near. What does God want from any of us? And what does God offer to any of us? Himself. He wants to give us himself. He wants us to know him and enjoy him and experience him. And he's saying, draw near. Then he challenged us, commanded us, let's hold fast. Let's hang on to this, this faith that we have, this assurance that we have in Christ, this which we have known and trusted in and experienced. Let's hold fast to that without wavering. Let's not go back and forth. Let's hold fast to this without wavering. And then to make sure that we understand this critical component of a Christian life. And this part I cannot emphasize enough. Let's do this together. I mean, one of the great harms that modern American Christianity has done to people who claim to be Christian is this, is we have conveyed subtly and sometimes not so subtly that Christianity is really just about you and your personal relationship with God. It's just about you and God. And when we talk about God in those terms, people make some conclusions that are absolutely unwarranted by Scripture and contrary to good spiritual health. Like, I can be okay with God and be disconnected from everybody else. I can worship God in the same way if I'm sitting in a lawn chair out by the lake or sitting in a canoe somewhere or sitting on the side of a hill or swinging a golf club. I can be with God and, you know, I'm the church and the church is everywhere and God's everywhere and it's just about me and Him. And that's not the plan. That's not the way we're wired. That's not the way God built the church. And that's not the way we persevere. That's not the way we hold fast without wavering. That's not the way we endure till the end. That's not the way we hang on to this confidence we have. So we do what God wants us to do. So we get what God wants us to have. That's not the way we do it. Let us stir one another to love and good works. Let's do that. Stir, provoke, press. Let's do that for one another. Let's stir one another up to really love God and to do the right things. Good works is a broad term here. It doesn't simply mean showing up to serve the hungry on a Saturday somewhere or taking some food to be donated to a shelter. It means the life of a Christian, the good works that mark who we are. Let's stir one another to that. Let's stir one another to love. Let's not neglect to meet one another. There's something that is tragically lost when you and I don't meet together. 
As I shared with you last week, if you read that little section in your bulletin each week with some thoughts that sort of relate, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly to the message, we trade so much away when we're not gathered together. Because we make our faith really, maybe unconsciously, subconsciously, I should say, about us. It's just about what I'm hearing, what I can get from this, what I'm going to do with this, how I'm going to apply this. We stop thinking about each other. We stop thinking about the people around me who might be going through a hard time, who might need a listening ear, who might need somebody to pray for them, who might need to celebrate something big that God is doing in their life, like Sloan's baptism. To be here today and see that, to see the transformation of one who grew up among us, counted himself as one of us until God got a hold of his heart and he realized he was not and now is. You've got to be a part of that and celebrate that with him and experience it and feel it. And I hope that's a a boost to your faith. These things happen when we're together. So do you see now why those commands matter so much? Here you've got this challenge in the second half of chapter 10. Don't shrink back. Don't fall away. Don't let go of all this. Hang on to this. Finish well. All those commands were there to help you do so. Keep drawing close. Keep persevering. Keep holding on and do this, do this together. As I was reading this passage of Scripture, and again, I, I forewarned you that this is a warning passage. Some of the phrases that you saw, be honest, and I don't answer this aloud, just in your own mind, okay? Does that fit your image of God? Now, I don't know if you've been in church a lot all your life, if this is all new to you, but we all have ideas about God. We all have ideas about who we think God is, what we think God is like, how we think God relates to us. Everybody does. What do you think about God? Do these terms fit your view of God? One who brings fearful judgment? One who gives a fury of fire that consumes, and I left out a word there, adversaries? You mean God actually sees some people as adversaries and he consumes them with a fury of fire? A God of vengeance who says, I will repay? Which is to say it doesn't come out of nowhere. God's actions are not out of a vacuum. But if he judges us, it's a deserved judgment, a righteous judgment. It's a repayment for what has been done. The Lord will judge. Or what about this statement? It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything. But I would dare say there aren't a lot of people left, religious or irreligious, that have a view of God that includes that sort of terminology, that sort of character. You know, the most famous sermon probably, I would, I would guess. Most famous sermon ever preached in America, certainly the most famous sermon this man ever preached, was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. How many of you have heard the title of that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, by Jonathan Edwards? Now, I suspect that more people have heard of the sermon than have actually heard the sermon or read the sermon. And by the way, if you read the sermon, it would have been just like you would have heard it because Jonathan Edwards was a meek and mild man, and when he preached, it wasn't with hellfire and brimstone. He wasn't a suck and blow preacher, you know, kind of, <gasps> and he's just wiping his head with a handkerchief. He wasn't that. He read from a manuscript, quietly and gently. But if you read some of the words of that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, you would read some of the harshest statements probably ever preached in an American pulpit. Now, unfortunately, and I would say it's a gross overgeneralization or a falsification even of sort of the whole Puritan ethos, centers in the hands of an angry God doesn't necessarily summarize all the Puritans taught or believed. But yet, portions of it are so intense 
and unapologetic that it's worth you hearing. Here's a section. The God that holds your over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is a purer eyes than to bear than to bear to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in yours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from filling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night, that you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yet there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. Old sinner, consider the fearful danger you're in. It's a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit filled with the filled with the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incense as much against you as against many of the damned in hell you hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it, ready every moment to singe it, burn it asunder. And the list goes on and on. When you hear those sort of words, you ask this question, I think. Why did Jonathan Edwards preach a sermon like that and to whom was he preaching a sermon like that? As I said in the beginning, as I was introducing this message, I suspect if you were to hear me say something like that, you would immediately shut it down and say, well, you can't be talking to me. That doesn't include me. So who was Edwards talking to? You see, again, this sermon didn't arise in a vacuum. There was something that was happening in the American church in that time, in congregational churches, Puritan churches in that time, something that had become known as the halfway covenant. Here's the essence of this, this situation, so stick with me, and I think the history will speak to us today. Originally, in a Puritan or congregational church, to be a member, which would include being able to receive Lord's Supper, being able to vote in their business meetings, there were two requirements. One, you had to have a clear, compelling story of conversion. There had to be some sense that you actually had a testimony that you were born again, that you were converted. The second is that you lived an upstanding moral life. That no one could accuse you of living a godless life. Those two things. Now, congregational churches, Puritan churches in Edwards' day, also believed that infant children of those members who were converted, had a clear testimony of conversion, and who lived a godly life, that because of God's covenant to their parents, that those infants also were part of that covenant and therefore had the right to be baptized. And then when those infants were baptized, it was expected of them as they grew up in the church that at some point they also would experience repentance, a work of God's Spirit, conversion, and they also would demonstrate a godly life, at which point they would be invited into fullness of membership in the church where they could take Lord's Supper and they could also vote in membership. They believed in some sort of age accountability where that happened. And as long as the church was spiritually vibrant and healthy and those infants who were baptized did grow up into godly young people or adults who became followers of Christ also, the system seemed to hold up. But what happened when the churches began to go through seasons of spiritual drought and those baptized infants grew up in the church 
but they never demonstrated conversion. They never demonstrated a desire for spiritual things. They never showed the fruit of someone who really followed Christ. They had no credible testimony. They didn't live upstanding lives in the community. What happens when they become adults and then they have children? Well, that, that was the dilemma. Hanging on to that old covenant theology, those adults who were quote-unquote halfway members of their churches began to demand the right that their children also be baptized, their infant children. Now, can you see what that begins to do to dilute the spiritual health and vitality of a church? The one most critical element for the health of any church, as any of you who've been to our membership class will have heard from me or from Dan, is this, that its members actually be converted. That is the one non-negotiable, one essential. So imagine in Edwards' day, now you're a generation and then a second generation removed from expecting that people are genuinely converted, and now you're baptizing people, bringing them up in the church who aren't saved. Now does, does Edwards' sermon begin to make a little bit more sense? He wasn't speaking it out in the bars. He wasn't speaking it out in the streets. He wasn't going to the prisons and the jailhouses to speak this. He was speaking it in the church to those people who had grown up in the church, had some form of the thing, but none of the power thereof, demonstrated nothing of it. But if you were to ask them, are you a Christian? They probably would have said, yeah, yeah, I am. Now, without connecting the dots for you, I think you can see the dilemma in the modern American church. How many halfway Christians do we have? I mean, how many of those people exist among us whose parents were Christian, demonstrated genuine conversion accounts and stories, could tell you how God changed their life? They've lived a life that's worthy of the gospel, not a life that earns it, but a life that demonstrates it. And then their children, while we didn't baptize them as infants, we come perilously, perilously close sometimes because we baptize them at four and five and six and seven, expecting that they'll eventually show the fruits of conversion. But what happens when they don't? They never do. Now, they know some stuff. They know the facts. They could pass some quizzes. But the heart is unchanged. The desires are still fixed on the things of this world. And when it comes to Christ, they really just don't care much. What now? What do you have? That's the challenge. Edwards was preaching for the sake of the soul's of those who were de deluded, confused, deceived. And he was speaking to the soul of a church that has to decide, will this be a legitimate, God-honoring people, a people who genuinely are God's people, or will we be something else? That's what Edwards was doing. And to a degree, that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing. Why these statements about the wrath of God? So that you will understand there are only two possible outcomes. Either we are drawing close to him, the one to whom we belong, the one who has our hearts, or we are doing, as the writer of Hebrews says, absolutely do not do. We're trampling God's son underfoot. We're treating the covenant as though it were meaningless. And we're despising the spirit of God's grace that he gives to us. Towards the end of that message, Edward says this, Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to hold back a falling rock. And he said that to the people sitting in the church. People who had been baptized, people who had taken the Lord's Supper, 
people who didn't understand that the only thing between them and hell was a breath. So what will you do now? What will you do with this? So here's the question. In Edward's time, as he preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, or in our time and every other time that's engaged this text, who should fear what's being warned about in Hebrews chapter 10? Who should fear this? Who is this addressed to? Who should fear this? The answer, those who are, by their persistent, unrepentant sin, demonstrating themselves to be rebels against God. This is not the occasional This is not the person who sometimes blows it, sometimes chooses poorly, sometimes sins painfully and regrettably. This is a persistent, unrepentant rebel against God, the one who refuses to submit, the one who recognizes God but rejects him, the one who not only sins for all have sinned, but the one who sins without impunity, doesn't care. And here's something important for you to understand. The uninformed cannot be this. Hebrews chapter 10 is not talking to the uninformed. It's not talking to the people who don't know who God is. It's not talking to people who have not been exposed to what God's law is. It's not talking to people who don't know who Jesus is. It's talking to people who have looked at this square in the face and said, no, no, that's not me. I don't desire that. I don't want that. That's why this warning was to them. That's why this warning is is to us. This person, the rebel against God, three things this passage says that he does. He tramples underfoot the Son of God. It's not really a hard concept to understand what the author is teaching here. He tramples underfoot the Son of God. In a word, that would say useless. God is of no use to me. I don't need that. What worth is Christ to me? You ever have that kind of conversation with someone that doesn't seem to see the need for it? And no matter what you do, you you can't convince them of it? You know, maybe they're healthy enough. Um, Maybe they've got enough of the world's stuff that they're satisfied enough. Maybe they've got enough friends and close relations that, you know, they're happy enough. They just don't see the need for it. For them, it's nothing. It may be something for you, but for them, I, I can take this or leave it. They trample it underfoot. When I was in seminary in New Orleans, um, a common activity of seminary students was to, to go down to Jackson Square and French Quarter and places like that and hand out tracts. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to the French Quarter. Don't tell me. I don't need to know all your stories. I don't know if you've been down Bourbon Street and things like that, but here's my guess. Most of the people walking down Bourbon Street are not there to see if they can discover Jesus. And so what happens is some well-meaning young students got a handful of tracts He's passing them out. Most people will refuse them altogether. The people who take them will throw them down. And what you end up at the end of the night is all these gospel tracts trampled underfoot. And it's a pretty vivid image of what we do with Christ in general. This person tramples underfoot the Son of God. He profanes the blood of the covenant. Now, to make sure we get this right in the context of Hebrews, this means more than meets the eye, I think. The idea of profaning the blood of the covenant is to say, you know what, I'm going to stick with the religion that I have. Again, their challenge was to go back to the old system, the old Judaism. I'm going to go back to that. I'm going to stick with what I have. I'm going to profane the blood of the covenant. In our context, that would be, you know, I believe there are many different ways that a person can know God. I believe there are many different ways that a person can reach God. I don't believe that Jesus is the only way. Um, I believe, you know, this will do it, that will do it, this system will do it, and you make the list. 
It profanes the blood of the covenant. How so? Because only the blood of Christ is holy. Only the blood of Christ suffices. Only the blood of Christ meets the demand of a holy God and pays for the sins of the repentant. Only Christ can do that. To think there's any other way profanes that blood. It makes it less than holy. Then what does it mean ultimately when you hear the good news of Christ, when you experience a sense of Christian community because you've been in church and you've seen Christians working and living and serving together, and you've experienced those ordinances, maybe you've been through baptism and you've passed through the water and you've shared the cup of communion and the bread of communion and you've experienced all these things and the work of the Holy Spirit hitting, 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 and you refuse it, you reject it, what does the Bible say? You have outraged the Spirit of grace. And I certainly don't want to try to speak for the Holy Spirit's emotional intent, because the word outrage certainly carries more than just condition, it carries emotion. But imagine, imagine the Holy Spirit as He looks on us for whom He is offering such grace. He says, you're going to refuse this? You're going to refuse my patience and my mercy and my forgiveness? You're going to refuse the life that I'm offering? Outrage is the spirit of grace. And what's the result? Nothing but judgment. Nothing but judgment because there's nothing left. So when this passage in Hebrews tells us this about the cross, when it says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, that doesn't mean that the cross of Christ and what Jesus did there is no longer effective. It simply means there's nothing else. If you reject that, and this is a message that all of us need to hear, If you reject that, God has nothing else he will offer you. Jesus will not die again for you. There will be no other Savior for you. There will be no other sacrifice sufficient for you. There will be nothing else that will pay the penalty, access the throne of grace, grant you the Father, nothing else. This is it. So if you refuse Christ, what is there? And so the author of Hebrews is laying out this ultimatum. It's all the good things of God that you can draw near to, or it's judgment. That's it. That's it. There's there's nothing else. There's no in-between. It's just that. So Here's why you and I can't ignore these warnings. Let me hit this quickly. One is this. Simply put, we have seen too many fail. Have we not? Have we not seen too many fail? I, I alluded to some in the little article, little statement in your worship folder this morning and Revisited someone that we've talked about before, Joshua Harris, who wrote some best-selling Christian books, pastored a megachurch, led a movement on purity and dating and those kind of things, and then walked away not just from his family and from his marriage, but from his faith, and then gave an outright statement of denial that he's not, by any terms that we would use, a Christian. And it's not just these sort of superstar Christians um, that break our hearts. It's the ones that we know. It's the ones that grew up with us. It's our own sons and daughters who grew up and just walked away from the whole thing. It's the people that we know when we talk about those who have deconverted. We see faces. We know names. There are feelings attached to that. Haven't there been too many? I mean, there, there, too many have failed. This is why you and I, even if you're steadfast in your faith, even if you're one who has, is drawing near, one who does hold fast without wavering, one who does encourage one another to love and good works, one who does gather together, we've seen too many fail. And the stakes of failure here are too high. They're too high. And this is, a, this is a tough part of these passages to work through. Because here's my conviction, okay? So I'll step over here. This, is just, this one's me. This is editorial. 
I think way too many Christians today would rather debate the concept of apostasy, falling away. We love to belabor those discussions and debates. Can Christians lose their salvation? And we'll love to kick those around because here's the thing, I think. We'd rather keep this theoretical than let it get too personal. And don't mishear what I'm saying. Don't misunderstand me, please. I believe ultimately that those who are Christ will forever be Christ. I also believe we will be surprised at those who we thought were Christ, who in fact were not. I think that's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, 24 and following those warnings about those who say to me, Lord, Lord, and then run down their spiritual resume before me of the didn't we's, only to hear the response of harsh reality, I never knew you. I never knew you. You and I, if we debate this and make it just a theology that's abstract, disconnected from us, then we're not going to deal with the real warning here. The warnings that tell us, finish. Don't just start the Christian faith. Don't just begin this thing. Don't just start this journey. Don't just look back at the day you were baptized or the certificate that you got hanging on a wall somewhere or tucked away in a Bible somewhere. Don't just look back at that day where you prayed some prayer. Evaluate yourself today. Am I in Christ? Am I walking with Christ? And finish well. The reward is for the finishing. The race is for the winners. It's for those who cross the line in faith. There's not much hope in Scripture given for those who say they begin but are not continuing and don't finish. It's just not there. So debate it away if you would like, but take seriously the gospel and the challenge as the stakes are too high. And the third thing, which we've talked about this week and last week even more so, far more than we realize, I think, sometimes, we have a responsibility to and for each other. That's a whole part of this Christian equation, I think, that we are not recognizing too well. We do have some responsibility for one another. What are we doing for those around us that we know are falling, faltering? failing? What, what are we doing for those that we know are walking away? We have a responsibility to one another. We are to be arm in arm as one man for the sake of the gospel, the Bible says. How do we do this? We've got a responsibility. So here's my question in conclusion. So how do we do? What's our responsibility in this? How do you and I do all that we can to prevent apostasy, a falling away, a turning our back on, a rejecting or refusing what we once said was ours, how do we prevent apostasy from happening to any of us? Now, notice the way I wrote that, and I did it intentionally. This is one of those words where I try to be very careful in my wording. How do we do all that we can? Because ultimately, the Holy Spirit is predominant in this equation. But that doesn't mean you and I don't have a responsibility here. How do you and I do all that we can to prevent apostasy from ever defining any of us? That's why I titled this message this, and I changed it just this week, thinking through this point. I want, no, let me back up. I don't want what's described in Hebrews chapter 10 to describe any of us. When I read Hebrews chapter 10 in the second half, I want to be able to say, that's serious and that's real, but it's none of us. It's not us. I want, I want it to be said of us that we are those who finish well. So how, what can we do? What are some things that we can do? Listen, this is not an exhaustive list, but I want you to hear these out, and I'm going to do them quickly. First one is this. You have to make sure, I have to make sure, 
If you're a teacher, you have to make doubly sure that you're speaking, and if you're listening, make sure that you're hearing the true gospel. The true gospel. What do you mean by that? I mean, we have sold ourselves so short, we have crippled ourselves so much spiritually over the years by giving, remember I used this term last week, a truncated gospel. That all you have to do is pray this prayer. All you have to do is believe these things and you're fine. And how your life looks from there on, I mean, it should be better. It ought to be. God wants it to be. We're going to spend the rest of your life telling you how to be. But if it doesn't, it just doesn't. As long as you do these things, listen, the gospel is a call to follow Christ. It's a call to be his disciple. As I shared with you last week, ultimately, only disciples are converts. Consider the things that Jesus taught, the parable of the soils. Those aren't different types of Christians. Those aren't rankings of Christians. Those are descriptions of people who look like, think like they are Christians. People think they are. But then only one of those groups proves itself to be Christ. It's the true gospel. It's the gospel that comes in and changes your heart. It's the promise of the Old Testament about the new covenant. And the old covenant says, I'm going to take out their old hearts, their hearts of stone. I'm going to put in a heart, heart of flesh. I'm going to give them a heart that knows my will, knows my law, and desires it. That's what the true gospel does. That means at least that we reject all those superficial, simplistic, listen, just pray this prayer. I, this is, again, here, this is me, okay? I appreciate the gospel efforts that some people make on social media like Facebook. But be careful that what you're saying to people doesn't imply you can live like hell and still get heaven if you just pray this prayer. The call to Christ is an all-consuming call. Abandon yourself. Deny yourself, die to yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Anything less than that is not a gospel call. And we're just deceiving people. We're deceiving people and we're deceiving ourselves. If there are any of us that are sitting here in this room or listening or we've got sons or daughters or family members or people we care about that say that they're Christian but they don't care about Christ, they don't care about the things of God, there are more than just question marks there, folks. And we've got to look seriously at the true gospel. Here's something else we can do, and author of Hebrews tells us clearly, we can worship together regularly. Now, that's not a panacea, but it is part of the process. It's part of the process of being together with other people, exposing your life to other people, rubbing off on other people, and vice versa. It's part of praying together and hearing the word together, responding to it together. It's part of celebrating together and praying together and seeking God together. All of these things are part of how God perseveres us and how we persevere together, worshiping together. A third thought I had this week on this particular text is this, and this one is, I think is so critical. When it comes to your understanding... I wish I had more time on this one. When it comes to your understanding of God and the gospel, please give far more attention to truth than you do emotions or experiences. Truth. This has been another one of our paralyzing, um, debilitating spiritual conditions over the years in churches like ours is that people like us just wanted to talk about the feelings and emotions. I just want someone to love me. I just want to love people. Love God, love people. And we thought of things like doctrine or theology as cold, impersonal, impractical. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard in the last 30 years. That stuff doesn't have anything to do with my life, my real life, until the person who says that or feels that walks away from the faith. And then you realize that doctrine and truth has everything to do with your life. 
And long after the emotions have, have gone away, and long after that experience has been forgotten, it's truth that remains. What do you believe? What is true? What is right? What is good? I was reading a, a, a very interesting, painful article this week by someone named Caleb Waite. And again, it was on the subject of people who've fallen away from the faith. And Caleb was speaking specifically to that younger generation, which we've seen repeated again and again, grow up in our churches, go through our student ministries, our children's ministries, our student ministries, head off to college or the workforce or whatever it may be, and they just walk away from it all. They abandon it all. And here's what he said. He said, one common denominator I've noticed between the friends who have stayed in the church and those who have left is this. One's knowledge and relationship to the doctrines of the church. Nearly all of my friends who are naturally interested in doctrine remain faithful members in churches to this day. Those who are not have moved on from Christianity as if it were an intermediate step in their greater spiritual journey. Here's what he said. He said, formal doctrine was held in less esteem than authentic spiritual experience. Doctrine is impractical. Community life is practical. Theology is for the intellectuals in the church, but the average member just needed to be loved. Doctrine was less essential for students than the need to attend a purity conference, for instance. In short, the church was largely pragmatic, life-enhancing, and a place to encourage individuals on their own spiritual journeys. And what do we do with that? He says this low view of doctrine and high view of personal spirituality is often the first step of deconverting. It's not rooted in anything. It's not rooted and grounded in truth. Elevate truth. What does God's word say? What is true? Here's something practical for you. You want to help each other persevere, endure to the end? You've got to be real with a few godly people that you trust. It's not a suggestion. I think that's is an absolute essential for spiritual health. Who have you got in your life that will challenge you, make you better, always pushing you to want to know more, study more, learn more, think more, and if necessary, confront you? Who have you got? Who have you got? Because that secrecy, that, that facade that we build when we're so concerned with reputation but not character or integrity, that's a killer. That's a spiritual killer, and Satan loves that. He will do all that he can to encourage you in your facade building. Be real with a few people you can trust. Here's another. All of us need to submit to God-given authority. The ultimate rebel is Satan. You know that, right? The ultimate rebel. One who rebelled against God and his goodness and his glory, his will, his ways, Satan. And Satan has been leading in the ultimate rebellion sense. And at the heart of almost every sin of man is a tendency to rebel, to push back against, to say, who are you to tell me? Who is an authority over me? And God forbid, we do it even with God sometimes. We do it with his word. I'm not sure I believe that. I'm not sure I can accept that. And we'll subject his word to what we think science says or what we think philosophy might say or what in our own vast rational thinking says. And we're not submissive to it. And the Bible clearly gives authority to the word the Spirit, and get this, here's an ancient, not very modern concept, the church. God grants authority to that, to what's being taught in the church, to the elders that are in the church, to rightly preserve and protect. We need to be under authority. We need to have people that can say to us, and we receive it, that's not right. That's not good. People out from under authority 
are people that are most likely to teeter on the edge of apostasy. Authority perseveres. Two more. Here's a, pa- here's a thought I saw in this passage that just also resonated with me. If I could give you a, a takeaway as you leave this place today, may it be your aim that you go beyond faith to faithfulness. Move beyond faith to faithfulness. Here's what I mean by that. I'm finding too many Christians that are still on the first square of the game of life when it comes to their faith. They will say they have believed. They will say they hold these things to be true. They'll say, I have accepted Christ or whatever. They, they, I have faith, but there's no faithfulness. There's no daily grind of following Christ. God, you're an authority over me. Your word directs me. Today I want to live to please you. I'm challenging you as a Christian. You want to persevere. You want to have real assurance. Your assurance is not going to come from your faith. It's going to come from your faithfulness. How do I know that I'm saved? Now, I know what God did for me. I know it biblically. I know it doctrinally. But I know it experientially because I'm walking with him. And because he's convicting me of my sins and I'm repenting of them. And he's working on me. He's changing me. and He's shaping me. Listen, I've got faith. I want to be faithful. I want the Lord to find me faithful, always walking. And always, and here's how this passage ends, always, 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 we have to constantly reshape our vision to do this. Take the long view. When you're looking at life, take the long view. Listen to what he's saying in this passage. Listen again, verse 36. You have need of endurance. You have need of endurance. This is a long race. This is a long run. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. That when you have finished well, when you've kept the faith, when you've finished the race, when you can say to God, my life has been poured out like a drink offering before you. When you do that like Paul did, you receive what's promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. Our motivation for following Christ is eternal. We're not waiting to just go to heaven one day. We're living for the joy of heaven today. We're living for the reward of heaven today. This is the long view. I'm going to keep persevering. I'm going to finish. So this is my prayer. I look at the end of this passage, and so many questions have been asked over the years about Hebrews chapter 10, and can Christians lose their salvation, and who is he talking to? I think of this analogy that one pastor used that's Probably something common to almost every, if not every parent in this room. How many times have you given your kids one of those extreme sort of warnings? You know, you don't want them to run out in the street, so you say, you know what's going to happen if you run out in the street, don't you? You're going to be splattered all over the hood of that truck. Now, you don't expect your children to be splattered over the hood of a truck, but nonetheless, you tell them not to be, right? You tell them not to be. Listen, if you touch that stove, you're going you're gonna to burn your hand off. You, know, you don't want them to burn their hand. You don't want them to touch their, that stove. You hope they won't, but yet you warn them. And in this passage, too, here's an author. Here's a, a speaker. Here's, a, here's someone that the Holy Spirit is giving these words to to speak to a people and saying, listen, I don't want this to be you. And just as the old saying goes, you know, we, we motivate that horse sometimes with carrot, sometimes with stick. Listen, there's a reward ahead. Listen, don't let this be you. I, 
this is my prayer, that this would be so of all of us. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are those who have faith and preserve our souls. That's my aim for us today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word, living and true, sharp, so sharp. Boy, it cuts right through. That's what it promises. That's what it does. Lord, I pray that we've heard it today. I pray that you have, I pray you've shaken down to the roots, the tree of anyone in this room whose story is, is false, who has a sort of a halfway sort of faith. Maybe they've been baptized into it. Maybe they participated in it. It's not theirs. There was a dilemma in the early church here in the Americas that nearly destroyed many congregations. Father, may that not be true of us. May we be real. So Lord, I pray with the seriousness of the warning in Hebrews chapter 10 that those who are not yours would draw near to Christ today. They would draw near to you, Father, through Christ. They would receive the grace and mercy that you offer. And your Holy Spirit would prevail in them. and You would change them. Lord, may we be your people till the end. May that be us, not falling away, not shrinking back, persevering, rewarded to enjoy you forever. May that be true of us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.